Good morning. My name is Bob. I have the privilege today of reading you the Old Testament from the 131st Psalm, all three verses. A pilgrim song of David. Lord, my heart isn't proud. My eyes aren't conceited. I don't get involved with things too great or wonderful for me. No, but I have calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child on its mother. I'm like the weaned child that is with me. Israel, wait for the Lord from now until forever from now. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Debbie. The New Testament reading is found in James 3.13 through 15. Are any of you wise and understanding? Show that your actions are good with a humble lifestyle that comes from wisdom. However, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, then stop bragging and living in ways that deny the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. Instead, it is from the earth, natural, and demonic. The word of the Lord. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading. Hello, my name is Kyle, and today's gospel reading is found in Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then he called a little child over to sit among the disciples and said, I assure you that if you don't turn your lives around and become like this little child, then you will definitely not enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who humble themselves like this little child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray this morning, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Would you speak to us today? That through your words and by your spirit, you would speak into our lives. You would teach us the road that leads to life and help us to walk in it. Lead us and guide us into truth. Lead us and guide us into paths of righteousness for your namesake and for our flourishing. We pray these things in your name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be back. I have missed you the last couple of weeks. I want to say a special thanks to our worship pastor, Pastor Micah, and to Dr. Pete for preaching the last two weeks while I was away. Uh, I missed you all. I want to say hi to everyone that's watching online this morning. Maybe you're at home and unable to join us for services, or you're traveling, or live somewhere else. We love you. We miss you. Hope that you are doing well. And once again, if you're new here this morning, we want to welcome you. Thanks for being here. And if there's anything that we can do to help you, you get connected into this uh, family of faith, please let us know how we can uh, answer any of your questions or help you uh, connect with other people. We are nearing the end of our summer series through the Psalms of Ascent, which also means we're nearing the end of summer, which feels a bit strange because I think the rain just stopped and summer just began. So I'm not quite ready for August to be here, but it's coming really 
quick. Uh, we're going to be in the Psalms of Ascent this week, and next week I'll be preaching uh, on Psalm 131 and 132. And then the following week, August 6th, uh, our student ministry will help lead the service, and our youth pastor, Pastor Brock, will be preaching uh, on how the Psalms of Ascent can help us to know uh, how to be a community of faith for the next generation and what the next generation needs to see modeled in us uh, from these Psalms. So that will be on August 6th. These songs, these 15 songs of ascent, uh, were originally sung by the Israelites as they made their way up from wherever they were in the land up to Jerusalem for three annual pilgrimage feasts. Most scholars believe that they sang these songs one after another on repeat as they journeyed. This is like the first worship playlist. And they traveled with it and had it on repeat and sang these songs. And over the course of the years, the church has also seen these psalms as a guidebook for discipleship, a guidebook, an insight into our own journey to God up from wherever it is that God met us in our own despair and darkness and journeying up to him in our walk of faith. Today we're going to be in Psalm 131, which Bob noted a second ago, is one of the shortest psalms in all of Scripture. It's only three verses long, uh, but the famous man Charles Spurgeon once said that this is one of the shortest songs to read, but the longest to learn, because it addresses some issues, some themes, some topics for us that are really challenging. It addresses the virtue of humility and the growth from infancy in our faith in our lives to maturity. And yet, as we find throughout the scriptures, it addresses maturity in a counterintuitive and surprising way, because maturity is described as childlikeness. So we're going to look today at these themes of humility and maturity and what it means to grow in faith. Psalm 131, verse 1. If you have a Bible, you can turn there and follow along. It'll be up here on the screen. It says this, Lord, my heart isn't proud. My eyes aren't conceited. I don't get involved with things too great or too wonderful for me. The original language says, my heart is not high. My eyes are not elevated. These are idioms for pride and presumption. Most often it's referring to the presumption that we are God or that we are God-like or certainly if we were in charge, we'd be doing a better job of it than God is right now. So the presumption is like, you know, God, I understand a little bit of who you are, but really I think you're getting it wrong here and I'll just take over in this area or in my entirety of my life right now. It's the impulse that stands behind our original sin, our grasping for more in the garden, our grasping to be God or to be God-like. And the psalmist renounces that kind of pride, rejects that kind of presumption. And he goes on and he says, I don't deal or I don't walk or I don't attempt great or marvelous things. I don't try things that are too difficult or too wonderful or beyond my understanding. The phrases he uses are the phrases that the scriptures often use to describe God's work. He says, I don't try to do the things that only you can do, God. I don't attempt to take your place. 
I don't try to do your works in the world. The, the psalmist says, I don't do that. I gave that up for Lent, and then I gave up Lent. And so I, I've just stopped trying all of those things. This is one of the many scriptures that beseech us to humble ourselves, to learn, to pursue, to practice, to embrace humility. And one of the many scriptures that reveal to us a God who will humble us. We will experience both in life. Voluntary humility, the humility that we learn, that we practice, that we embrace, and involuntary humility that comes in the midst of either life itself or in the very grace of God coming to us to address us in moments of pride. Both are hard. The involuntary is a lot harder than the voluntary. It's hard to choose humility. It's harder for humility to be chosen for us. But life itself is extremely humbling. At time, life is just humiliating. As I was thinking through this sermon and thinking back some of the more humiliating moments in my life, which there are many, um, it re the first one that came to my mind was my first varsity wrestling match. So here I was, a kid that had grown up in North Central Iowa. My freshman year, I made the varsity squad and was going to wrestle in the Manly Early Bird Wrestling Tournament. Manly was the name of the town. There was no other, you know, sort of commentary uh, there from that. And, you know, I'm, I'm like, look at me. I'm a freshman. I made varsity. The truth is I made varsity because the other guy either got hurt or was injured or didn't make weight. Like, I didn't really earn my spot. It was just coach saying, I'm going to need you to wrestle. And so I show up at this early bird wrestling tournament, and they go, and they match everyone up, and I'm the lowest seed in the bracket. And so I got to wrestle the guy who was the first seed, who was a senior and ranked the number two wrestler in the state. So I go, and I, I line up for my first varsity wrestling match. You know, I get down like this, and the guy's, you know, down like this across from me, and the whistle blows. And I swear, before I could take a breath, he shot in, grabbed my foot, and had one foot up in the air as I'm like bouncing around like this. And then, I'm not 100% sure this happened, but I'm pretty sure he looked at me and winked. <laughs> but I don't remember a whole lot because what he did is he, he had my foot with one hand, and then with the other hand, the opposite hand, he just went, Poof! hit me upside my head, and I went, right onto the mat, my contact flew out, my nose started bleeding, the referee called a timeout, I'm like looking around for my contact, my, you know, coach is bringing over, you know, a gauze pad to stick up my nose, and I hear the official say, Sean, take it easy on the kid. <laughs> the match lasted about 30 more seconds, and I was done. And that was a picture of my entire wrestling career uh, from there. Here I was thinking like, oh, yes, you know, I've arrived. And then this happens in some way. Life happens to us that way. We will experience humility in life. We will come across our needs, needs that we can't meet in our own lives, limits that we can't get over. We will experience failure and rejection, and sickness, and aging, and a hundred thousand other experience. 
experiences in life that are humbling for us. Things that will happen that will teach us humility. But as Christians, we're encouraged to practice humility, to learn humility, to adopt a posture of humility. So many of the practices that define our faith are things that we do either out of humility or in order to practice or to learn or to, to grow in humility. The practice of confession is a practice of humility. The practice of fasting is a practice of humility. The practice of prayer is an exercise in humility. The practice of silence and solitude are practices of humility. The practice of Sabbath is a practice of humility. The practice of coming to communion is a practice of humility. The practice of engaging in relationships with other people and realizing that we need others in our lives is a practice of humility. The very things that we do that we might learn to welcome the humbling aspects of life with grace and with joy, knowing that Jesus is in the midst of these things with us. And also we practice these things because we know that if we don't, that if we refuse, if we refuse to humble ourselves before God, that eventually in his mercy, in his loving kindness, he will humble us. This is incredibly challenging for us because our world, our culture, our day, we give lip service to the virtue of humility but the truth is our culture has taken the vice of pride and make it a, made it a cultural virtue. It's the very thing that gets held up. We, of course, don't call it that. We prefer words like ambition and progress and other words that we use, but these are just new expressions of our human pride. There are a thousand ways that we attempt to live in ways that deny our limits, that we attempt things that are beyond our capacities, that we deny reality or deny the revelation of God. And James would come to us in any one of those moments and say, stop bragging and living in ways that deny the truth. The psalmist says, no, I have given all of that up. I have not practiced having a high hearts or elevated eyes. See, what pride does is that pride outsizes us. It pushes us beyond the limits of what it means to be human and humility and all of its shapes and forms and all the ways that we practice it. Humility right-sizes us. To be humble is to be human. No more, no less, but fully human and right-sized. A right-sized human. Some, especially some Christians, think that to practice humility means to be less or to be nothing. It means to be less than human or to be nothing, to sort of be groveling around as if, as if we have no identity and no hope and no love and no future and nothing in our lives that is good. Humility is not self-aggrandizement, but it is also not self-abasement. To be humble is to not have an elevated view of ourselves, but it's also not to have a deflated view of ourselves either. True humility will always lead to dignity and not to degradation. 
It will lead us to dignity, to understanding who we are. Humility will remind us that we are not God. At the same time, it does not deny that we were made in his image and his likeness and called into his kingdom and filled with his spirit and gifted to participate in his ongoing work within the world. To be humble is to come back to God and in doing so, come back to our true right-sized selves. To be humble is to learn how to be human how to live as humans. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, our lives are lived well only when they are lived on the terms of their creation. To be humble is to say, I have been created by God. Everything that I have is a gift from God. And that creation includes being created in his image. It means being redeemed from my sin by his blood. It means being adopted into his family. It means being considered one of his kids, and it means being called to represent him in the world. To live well is to live as humans the way that God made us. Embracing the glory that God has given us while recognizing our beauty, our dignity, our wonder, our worth, our calling, and at the same time, Accepting our finiteness, our lack, our limitations, confessing our faults, confessing our failures, confessing our need for forgiveness, receiving God's grace, receiving his salvation, receiving his spirit, and learning and growing into our full humanity. To be humble is to be human, to be a right-sized human. And to be humble is to mature. It's to grow into who it is that God made us to be. But of course, we now also have our own prideful versions of maturity. Our own prideful ways of saying, well, yes, I have matured. I have arrived. They usually look like a growth in pride rather than a growth in humility. I have matured. I know more. I am better. I have arrived. Our expressions of maturity oftentimes comparative and judgmental and self-focused and bombastic and loud and frantic and grasping. It's almost like we're kicking and screaming trying to prove how much we've matured. This was me at ORU. I remember coming to faith at the end of my you know, teenage years and sensing a call into ministry and going to ORU to study student ministry. And then there were all these Bible and theology majors. You know the type. And I, I remember, you know, they were studying Greek and Hebrew and, you know, systematic theology. And it was like, you guys don't need that. Just love people. Get out of your books, get out of the classroom, go have coffee with somebody that doesn't know Jesus. And, you know, I was started to serve as a youth pastor at a church, and I would, you know, come into class and like, what did you spend your week doing? I spent 25 hours with teenagers. What did you do? You read 25 hours of Bart, what a waste of time. That was my very humble perspective on things. Uh, and then I realized, you know what happens when you like read the Bible with teenagers? They ask really good questions. Questions I didn't know the answer to. And you know where the answers were? With the Bible and theology students. I was like, oh, 
So I had to go to seminary and, you know, humble myself. Be like, okay, I need to learn more. I remember moments when I got married thinking, I got this. We've arrived. I'm 26. I know what I'm doing. We got this figured out. We're newlyweds. And within the first two years, we were in crisis and barely made it. Like, we didn't have a clue what are you doing. I came in arrogant, thinking I'm ready. I've got this. I'm all prepared. Parenting. So many times, thinking like, oh, we've got this. When we discover, like, I don't have a clue what I'm doing half the time. Each of the kids needs something different, and what they need is changing all of the time. And I'm learning and growing and failing and, and sometimes going, God, where are you? And I don't, I don't know what to do right now. Life is a way of humbling us. Unless we choose to be humble, we have our own prideful versions of maturity. But the psalmist gives us a completely different picture. Psalm 131 verse 2 says, no, I'm rejecting all this pride and presumption. And then it says, but instead, I have calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child on its mother, like the weaned child on me. The psalmist surprisingly, shockingly, counterintuitively, illogically, and sometimes frustratingly depicts mature faith as a weaned child. I don't want to be that. It doesn't feel right. And the psalmist isn't the only one. The disciples gather around Jesus and they're like, Jesus, we've got a great question for you. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? <laughs> Assuming he's just going to point one of them out, right? <laughs> I can imagine Peter, like, right? Like, I, I kind of got it locked down, Jesus. And then Jesus calls a little kid into the midst of them. <laughs> you imagine they're all sitting there huddled close around him. And he's like, hey, come over here. He calls this little kid and sits in the middle of them and says, unless all of you humble yourselves like one of these kids, then none of you will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Matthew 18, 4, those who humble themselves like this little child's we the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Notice that neither Jesus nor the psalmist employ the image of an infant. You ever found that to be interesting? They use the image of a child, particularly a weaned child. Newborns are marvelous, by the way. They are wonderful in so many ways. They're also impulsive and demanding. And do I need to go on or do we get like the, okay, most of you have the picture. Newborns are necessarily driven by needs in order to survive. Jesus and the psalmist and other scriptures don't encourage us to become infants, but to become childlike. For weaned children have learned to trust, and weaned children can be led by love. As we grow, what happens to us is that we become suspicious and distrustful and rebellious and resistant and arrogant and insistent on having everything our way right away because we honestly believe that we know what's best. Some of those things happen for a lot of, a lot of reasons. What we learn to do is we learn to start relating to God in the same way that we do other people. 
And the scriptures instead invite us to return to a childlikeness, to humble ourselves and to become like children. I think it's maybe the Christian sort of akin to what the French philosopher Ricoeur called a second naivete. Because to mature is to learn childlike trust in God. To mature is to learn to trust him the way that we once, if you grew up in a healthy and loving family environment, that we once learned to trust our parents. Ways that would allow us to, in love, just come and sit next to them. And trust, know that we were going to be safe and protected, know that meals were gonna be provided, know that who we were and that our identity was safe in them. To mature, to grow up as Jesus' people is to learn to trust God with all things in all ways at all times. To learn to trust, to learn to submit our will to God's wills, our way to his way, our plans to his plan, our everything to his everything, and to do so willingly. Even when God goes silent, even when we walk through a dark night of the soul, even when we experience profound loss and disappointment, even when it requires that we humble ourselves and that we ask for help and admit that we have needs beyond what we know what to do with, even when it's hard, even when it's costly, even when it's unclear. When you think about your life with Jesus right now, if you were just to take stock for a moment and to say, here's where I am right now with Jesus. If you were to say, this is what I'm walking with Jesus in, or this is what I'm walking with Jesus through. And then you were to ask yourself the question, why? Why is it that Jesus has me in this place at this time with these things? Is it possible that you find yourself where you are right now in your walk with God because he is weaning you? because he's maturing you, because he's teaching you, because he's bringing you back to childlike trust in him in a situation that it seems incredibly hard or incredibly difficult or incredibly confusing or incredibly costly or in a situation where you think this thing or that thing, is it possible that Jesus has led you into this place to teach you childlike trust in him. The psalmist says the one who has learned humble trust has soothed or quieted their soul. He says this in verse two, no, I have calmed and quieted myself. So we're gathered here this morning in his presence. What needs to be quieted in us today? What needs to be soothed? Is it possible that the loud questions or the, law, the loud declarations, whether we're making them externally or internally, is it possible that our certainty around something, that our perspective on our lives and where we are and what is going on in this situation or that situation, that loud voice that needs to be quiet, is it possible that whatever that voice is, is there because of our own pride, 
our own sense, like, God, I got this. God, I understand. God, I've got this figured out. God, just let me be. God, just let me take care of this. God, just, I don't need that. I don't need to hear about that. I don't need to read that. I don't need to ask that person for help. I don't need Celebrate Recovery. I don't need a meal group. I don't need this. I don't need that. No, 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 no. And these loud voices inside of our head of pushing everything in the way that God's trying to bring in. Is it possible that the things that need to be quiet in us are expressions of our own pride and not trust? And the psalmist invites us to quiet ourselves, to turn down the volume on our own voices and our own opinions and our own perspectives and the insistence on our own ways to quiet ourselves that we might hear the voice of Jesus leading us back to childlike trust in him. As Julian and the worship team come forward, the psalmist concludes with these words. It says, Israel waits for the Lord's from now until forever from now. Wait from now until forever from now. The calm and quiet soul willingly waits for the Lord and waits without a terminus waits without giving God a deadline, waits from now until forever from now. The original language, the verb means simply that, most of the time just means wait, but it can also mean hope. The quieted, humbled, seasoned, mature soul is a soul that has learned through childlike trust in God to wait with patient hope for whatever it is that we're waiting for in this world. And it does so because it has learned to trust in God, to trust in the trustworthy one. As we come to the table this morning, what we do is we come to the table by confessing our sin, confessing our need. It's an act of humility. Say, okay, I'm willingly choosing to humble myself today. And then as we come forward to the table, it's an act of humility and it's an act of trust saying, I don't have everything that I need, but you do. You have everything that I need for life and for godliness. You have everything I need for this situation. You have everything I need to get through this season. You have everything that I need is found in you or found through you as you bring it into my life. And so I humbly confess that I need you and I come open-handed, not bringing anything to the table to try to impress you, God, but humbly saying, I desperately need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your help. I need your spirit. I need your patience. I need your guidance. I need your hope. I need you. So as we come to the table, would you take a moment this morning and close your eyes and ask Jesus to quiet your soul. Quiet the loud, prideful voices inside of us. The voices that say, no, 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 I, I, I can't come to God until I do this. I can't receive forgiveness until I do this. And saying that God's free offer of grace and forgiveness is not enough for us, we have to prove something else. That's another version of pride. Oh, I can't, I can't do this. I can't participate in this. I can't bring this to God because God wouldn't accept me. He wouldn't 
It's again saying that our perspective is greater than God's perspective on the issue. God says, no, no, no. Bring all of yourself to all of me because I'm giving all of myself to all of you all of the time. And there's nothing that is beyond my grace. There's nothing that's beyond my knowledge. There's nothing that's beyond my strength. There's nothing that's beyond my ability to help. There's nothing, just humble yourself and come to me. And I will meet you in those moments. Let's quiet our souls for just a second. We're asking Jesus to quiet them inside of us as we prepare to come to the table.